One Track Run Talk podcast. Bringing the forefront of science and elite sport to you. Hi there guys, welcome to the One Track Run Talk podcast. Uh, my name is Fletch, I'm your host on this conversation with Steve Magnus. Just a little bit of upfront. I am a complete fanboy of Steve. Uh, pardon any giggliness that comes in during the during the interview. Uh, we also have a little bit of a sound issue in the very, very beginning, but we do sort that out, so please do bear with it. Steve is an incredible human, and I'm going to leave him to do his formal intro because I can do no service to uh, his expanse of expertise. But we do get into his new book, which is called Do Hard Things, an exploration of theory on mental toughness. So uh, let's get into this conversation with Steve Magnus. Welcome, Steve Magnus. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us on the One Track One Run Talk podcast. It's an absolute honor. Uh, I talk about you, not uh, not uh, like going into too much detail, but I talk about all the time. <laughs> so on our virtual runs, we uh, quote a lot of your book, um, all of them, to be honest. And so for our runners to get to sort of hear it from you now is, uh, hope, I think, going to be a, an absolute gem. So thank you again. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to uh, to chatting with you, and, and thanks for supporting my work. It means a lot. Oh, honestly, you've, you've done a, a massive service to myself, uh, but also some of the people that we've recommended the book to, we've almost prescribed it as a new form of medication. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I see your suffering here. Read this. There's a bit of context for your, your, your woes in there. Um, so yeah, thank you for your hard work. Honestly, people really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that. That means a lot. Thanks. No worries. Well, I think the the first thing we would like to sort of get to the grips of it is like, who is Steve Magnus? Uh, we'd like to get a little bit of the from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Who is he? Where did he come from? What's he up to? Yeah, absolutely. So, who am I? I'm I'm a person who likes to explore my interests and find different ways to like utilize that knowledge and and hopefully help others. And I think that comes from kind of my upbringing so my upbringing was like i was kind of a hardcore athlete like i love sport i love athletics i love the variety of sports from baseball to basketball to soccer and it just so happened that the sport that i was really good at was running track field so in high school i just like kind of my personality is like to go all in on things and kind of be a little obsessive so I got really obsessive about running in the sense that I wanted to perform well. I wanted to understand it. And honestly, like, it's the thing that probably got me through school and then later on university because I didn't care much about anything else. So that was who I, I was. And as an athlete, you know, I performed really well early on in my junior or high school years. Sort of. Uh, a 401 miler coming out of high school and the, the best in the nation in the U.S. that year. And I thought I had a lot of promise, but I didn't like live up to that promise. So I had injuries and roadblocks and all sorts of things that just, you know, didn't allow me to kind of fulfill my potential. And I think that put me down this path of like wanting to understand things. Maybe initially a little selfishly for myself, but more so like wanting to understand things so I could help others, maybe avoid some of the pitfalls that I went down and just like understand what was going on a little bit better. And that really kind of pushed me through my career, which, 
you know, for whether it was it was coaching actual runners or writing or like exploring ideas has been to try to help put things out into the world so that people can understand their kind of mental and physical game better so that they can, you know, get the most out of themselves. And then also instead of just getting the most out of themselves performance wise, also kind of holistically, like, you know, put running and whatever they pursue in perspective so that it becomes like an additive to their life and well-being and leaves them better off. Amazing. I mean, that's going to be uh, written on the headstone. <laughs> be, a, be, a, be a long headstone, but I think that's it's very important. So the interesting thing is that I, I'm sure you went through this maybe transition where people call themselves a particular thing where actually you've got a very broad description of yourself. Hi guys, just interjecting here. Unfortunately, the audio quality did deteriorate as the interview went on with this particular question. We didn't lose anything really, uh, just the beautiful reply to that idea of identity. So to summarize, Steve used to identify himself as a runner. It was very simple, very easy, had a reasonably narrow focus of what he was as a person. That has obviously changed and he's become much more broad and he is a coach as a, a simplistic term, but that obviously encompasses a huge variety of skills to help someone achieve what they want to achieve. And a beautiful sentence that Steve mentioned was he just wants to help people. And however he can help them with the tools that he has, he will. And if he can't, he's very honest and says that he can't. So that's a little summary. Let's get back into the interview. All hey. right. Does this work? That works. That works. Okay. Sorry. I don't know what's. Who knows what's going on? You, you buy the. You you get the equipment. You have it. It looks fancy. It's all set up, and then it inevitably stops working at some point. <laughs> You're like everything yeah. to nothing. <laughs> oh well. All right. Anyways. It, oh well. Yeah. Hopefully this this lasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. We would we'd end up like texting each other in the, by the end yeah, of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, again, um, just to hearing you speak about that, that brings us to a, a particular message that we wanted to bring across in the early stages of us turning virtual was we were at a, uh, a running event in uh, the UK and this particular person kind of walked up to us and was like, oh, man. This place sucks. We're like, really? <laughs> okay. He's like, oh, this isn't for real runners. And I was like, oh, okay. So you you think you're different to the people that have come down to this particular place because you see yourself as something that these you see these other people was not. So uh, and it was the same message that we were getting people coming down to a track session or even just talking to me. You know, I say, oh, go, I, I coach running. Um, they're like, oh, I'm not a real runner. <laughs> <laughs> or like I, I, I run once or twice a week you know I, i'm not a real runner like, that, that's more than a lot of people drain <laughs> like you're not doing any other fitness so what are you <laughs> so this i think identity is, is massive and i think that's something you write in your book is be careful what you identify yourself as because if that thing is taken away for you from you for some particular reason outside of your control it can be quite detrimental to you as an individual right Exactly. You know, that's one of it's one of the weird things in our sport is you see that as well Is like, you know, it's almost like these categories of like, well, I have to be a real runner if I do X, Y and Z. And there's danger in 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 having either too firm of an identity 
where you are intertwined with the thing, where you define yourself so singularly as, let's say, runner in this sense, where when that's taken away, maybe by injury or illness or retirement or something like that, it's almost like you have this this crisis, like you you fall into this almost like depressive like state. And there's actually research on this. It's very close to depression uh, because that thing gets taken away from you. And I think too firm is 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 a problem. And then, then on the opposite side, it's like, well, if you don't have some sort of identity around anything, that's a problem as well. You know, so what the research shows is that you want like a it's almost like the contrast. You want like a firm but flexible sense of self. Meaning in the 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 thing the way I like to describe it is remember back to like elementary school or when you're young, like the teacher reads a book about, I don't know, a policeman. And all of a sudden you're like, I want to be a policeman. Like, <laughs> and you you obsess over it and you like read about it. And then a couple weeks later, you're like, never mind. Like they read a book about a fireman. Like, I want to be a fireman. Like, let's go down this path, <laughs> you know? And in many ways, I think that's a little bit more appropriate not to throw it all away, but in those moments, what we were able to have, it's like, yes, like we saw ourselves in this role and as this future. So this was like part of who we were interested in. And we, we were able to go down a rabbit hole if we wanted to. But then if something presented itself, we were able to pivot without being like, oh, but man, I really wanted to be a fireman last week. Like, I'm just going to hold on to that just because that's what I thought. And I think as adults, if we can maybe not go all the way, but a little bit closer, a little bit back to our elementary school, maybe kindergarten ways and how we kind of see ourselves and hold our identities, we've got to be a little bit better because like that allows us to flexibly navigate the world while still holding on to, oh yeah, like I have a, a kind of secure sense of self. Hmm. Do you think there's something in in education around why we get stuck into potential like pigeonholes? Because there's this sort of the decision making process so early on. In my opinion, like 18 years old to be going like, I'm going to study law for the next three years. I'm going to become a lawyer, and you get to the end of it and go, I don't want to become a lawyer anymore, <laughs> or whatever it might be. Is, is, do you think there's something in that? Like, it's all we're, we're trained very early to make very clear choices. So I think there's two things that that have combined to do that. Is one is we've started or we've in, in the modern world we've increasingly looked for almost to fulfill everything through our jobs and our identities around our jobs so that pushes us to put a big emphasis on like oh we got to pick the right job and because of this the often university setting what happens is that occurs around 18 as you said like we define the next you know 20 30 40 years of our life by um by that decision we make often. And I, I think that it's, it's, it's that way because we have this kind of like performance centered world where we're like, you have to do this if this is the path towards success. Because for many years it was, it was like, go to college, like, you know, define what you, your job is gonna be and then spend the next 40 years of your life doing that thing. The other thing that I think contributes to it as well is in the last 20 years with the explosion of the internet and social media, it's become almost more important to define who you are publicly because like we all now have a public persona. Even if you only have a hundred followers on Instagram, you still have a public persona. 
where 40 years ago, like that didn't exist. Like your friends knew who you are, your family knew who you were. And like, that's about it for most people. <laughs> yeah. So, so you could define yourself within like people who actually knew who you were. Now we have to define ourselves to a greater amount of people, many of which who have no inclination who we are besides our random photos that we post on Instagram or, or messages we say on Twitter. And what that does is it pushes us to almost cement around like some caricature identity that like, this is who I am. I'm the guy on Instagram who like, I don't know, post running videos or whatever it is, like whatever your thing is. And I think that has like a detriment to a degree because it causes us to cement. Because if it, here's the way I like to think of it. If you spent the last, I don't know, three years posting videos of cats on Instagram and everybody knows you as, as the cat guy, well, it becomes a lot harder to separate from that and start you know, posting pictures of dogs, even if that's what you really want. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that that also plays a large role is that we're, we're, we're kind of pushed societally to kind of narrowly define ourselves because like, you know, that's what we are. That's what we're pushed to do now, unfortunately. Yeah. I was just, I was just thinking like, when I had to set like, the Instagram up all those years ago, like, what are you? Like the, the category of like, what's your job? Like, Oh, oh uh, scroll, scroll, scroll. Sure. Mortgage application. What's your job? Uh, <laughs> there's always, like you said, that everyone wants to be able to put you in the bracket so that they can like crunch that data and, and use it in some form as well. It, yeah. It's, it, and it, it's, it's our propensity to, to categorize because it's easier to deal with categorize or black and white than it is to deal with the messiness of the people in front of you. Mm. And I think, again, like I'm not saying categories are bad, but like what happens is we get biased and stuck in them. So instead, what we have to do is we have to do the work to be like, hey, this is messy. Humans are complex. Like we're not one singular thing. And actually, there's research that shows that, like, that's part of what creates belonging. So if you look at research in the workplace, for instance, what creates connection and belonging to your fellow workers isn't, like, silly get-togethers or, like, trust falls that, you know, the corporation tells you to do. Instead, it, it occurs when you start to see Jim the accountant as more than Jim the accountant, where you see him as, like... <laughs> Jim, the, the guy who has a wife and two kids and like likes golfing or running or like playing poker, whatever it is, you start to see them as a complex human being. And that's what creates genuine connection. And I think too often we lose out on that because it's way easier to just like plop Jim in a category and say, oh, he's an accountant. That tells me everything I need to know. Like, forget the rest. Right. Absolutely. Matt, well, as, like you said, it's, it's changed so much over the years, but is a uh... I think the one thing that's coming into light, uh, being that this is actually stress awareness week right now, um, there's this buzzword that's going around, which is this sort of toxic masculinity. And I'd, I'd love to get your take on on if this comes under your remit first, like you said earlier on, like if you tell me <laughs> this is not your thing, great. If it is, fantastic. But that sense of self and that sense of like history and bringing into like what kind of bringing into what your book's all about, like toughness and being a man. How does that kind of play into in this conversation now? Yeah, I think it plays a large role because like, you know, 
uh, I'm going to go kind of philosophical on you, but if you look at, if you look at, at the research and even the recent, you know, uh, old school philosophy, maybe not old school, but like the work of like Joseph Campbell, who was famous for, um, you know, the, uh, essentially the, the hero's journey and myth, what, what, what it tells us is that the stories that we tell societally impact our expectations and which impacts like how we live and do things. And I think recently what's occurred is we've had this kind of master narrative around like masculinity or toughness or what it means to be a man even. And it's kind of, again, this kind of, you know, narrow identity that like chops off all the nuance and complexity and just like tells us like, this is it. And I think that does a detriment. It's not that we need to get rid of all of masculinity and all of that stuff, but it's, it's to tell us like, hey, like we've made this way too simple when there's more nuance here. And I think that's what I was trying to get at when in, in Do Hard Things where defining toughness is saying like, hey, hey, sometimes, yeah, you need to like put your head down and push through and sometimes that works. But if that's the only tool you have, that that's like giving me a hammer and telling me like the hammer is going to fix all my problems and just neglecting all the other tools we have at our disposal that will allow me to like do the project or fix my house or build the thing that I want to do. And we need to, you know, zoom out and see all those perspectives and see all those tools. And, and that's really what it's kind of all about. So when you mention like toxic masculinity or what have you, like I kind of hate the buzzword names around stuff, but what I think it tells us is like, we need a course correction that has more nuance and more understanding of like historically, well, why are we pushed in this direction so that we can course correct and maybe find that happy medium somewhere? Definitely. Uh, as a, a beautiful part of, of being human is that we are much more complex than we can ever imagine. And we're only just really scratching the surface when it comes to understanding ourselves, being on that uh, a scientific, physiological level, uh, emotional level, absolutely. Right? It's all just theory, really. Um, and we're discovering things all the time. With that mention, you mentioned earlier about connection and being able to see someone as something else. Where is this, with again, back to that sort of like what a man is, um, Paddy, one of the UFC fighters, came out recently and was talking about how, uh, in his beautiful Liverpoolian accent, uh, how like men don't talk, men don't talk to you about this stuff, and they don't discuss their problems. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think it goes back to that master narrative. Is that's what we've been kind of conditioned to do, um, in the sense that it, it's it's like the old line in. Um, the baseball movie a league of their own like there's no crying in baseball <laughs> because like well why why isn't there and the idea is almost like to be a man you need to be this like stoic don't talk don't show emotions etc and what that happened what that does is it sets us up for to work against our our natural physiology and psychology because we have emotions for a reason, right? They didn't just kind of evolve. We didn't just, you know, one day just come up with emotions and say, oh, this is like whatever. Like they evolve for a reason. They're signals, they're communicators. They're a way for our bodies 
uh, to tell like what's going on internally and when something is a little bit off. So if we don't acknowledge those, we're essentially saying like, oh, forget you body and how you evolved for millennia. Like we're just, we can do it better by ignoring this stuff, which is, you know, very, I don't know. It's just very strange. And the other part is like that don't talking, don't discussing. Well, whenever I talk to athletes and I ask them like, where are your, your best connections? Like where are your best friends? Almost all of them will say, oh, you know, it was like, I've still got, I've still got friends that have lasted decades that from my sporting years, from the team I was on, from the connections I made in running, whatever sport year is. And you're like, well, why do you think that is? And the answer is pretty simple is because in sport, even if we're met, we're quote unquote, trying to be men, our teammates, our friends see us at our highest highs and our lowest lows. Like, Everybody knows I've seen, you know, all sorts of people break down after a tough race or a tough performance, right? Crying. There is crying in sport. There's lots of crying if you've even been at a high <laughs> level, you know, um, but you see people at the highest highs and the lowest lows. You see people fail. You see people like just struggle because in sport, like it's all out there. Like there's no hiding it. And people are like, oh, yeah, you're right. But we, 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 we try not to do that in the real world. We try and put on a facade and not show and explore things. But what the research shows even outside of sport is connection and belonging and feeling like part of a community comes from being vulnerable. And it comes back down to, again, this is how the body evolved to do. Why does that work? Well, it's pretty simple. The research in psychology shows us if, you know, if I'm sitting here, uh, Anthony, and I'm saying, you know, if I share something kind of personal with myself, I say, hey, here's how I struggled. And then you say, you know what, Steve, like I struggled in something similar. Like, here's how I struggled. What our brain does is it goes, oh, like we just shared something that was kind of vulnerable. I can trust this person. And he reciprocated it. That trust then forms because our brain recognizes like, hey, we're being open. That trust can form. I can trust this person. Mm. I can reciprocate with them. And we create that sense of connection. If we don't talk, guess what? We never get those signals of, of trust. So how are we going to feel connected? So this is where I think it does a real disservice when we say like, oh, men don't talk. What have you is, well, if we don't talk, if we're not vulnerable, if we don't share what we're actually thinking and feeling and the struggles that we have, then we never get that genuine trust. Then we live on like the superficial land of, <laughs> we'll call it like social media, you know, exchange. <laughs> and, and that's not good for us. Like that doesn't create the, the genuine connection and belonging that we know we need to function as healthy, happy human beings. Amazing. Like I've, I've, I've done it in the, in the past where, you know, it has been a tough time and, you know, you've, you've Someone said, "Oh, how are you?" Like, yeah, fine. Yeah, fine. Like, you just you brush it off because like, you want to burden that person because then you're not ready if they want to hear it. But when you have reached out and gone, "Yeah, actually, uh, I've uh, been, been really struggling right at this minute," and they go, "Oh, cool, yeah," and, and then they don't quite know how to handle it. But when it's the perfect timing, when the person's willing to hear it, person's willing to speak, suddenly that's when it all can be created. But if we don't do it very often, those timings just don't happen, right? If we're talking more, the more opportunity arises. And I think that's where socially, we just haven't got that much time to spend with our friends anymore. It's like work, home, 
work, home, and then you get that one hour social chat a week with your friend. <laughs> you don't want to, like, in inverted commas, you don't want to ruin it by like bringing everyone down, but actually that's what's needed. It, it is. And this is why I think, you know, uh, I'm going to nerd out on running, but this is why I think running is great because it provides that space sometimes on those runs where you have those conversations because you're like, well, I'm going to spend the next hour running next to this person. <laughs> So we might as well spin the, you know, fill the the space, but you're also kind of in a heightened state, which allows you to kind of be vulnerable sometimes, you know, and either during or even after the runs. And I think that's where we have to do a better job is like creating those space where we can have those conversations with friends and not thinking, oh, I'm going to ruin you know, the, the night or what have you, because, you know, even now, like looking back do you remember the like meaningless chats on i don't know the who's gonna win the you know this week's football match or what have you <laughs> or do you remember like the genuine talks and connections sometimes like they're personal sometimes they're just like exploratory in nature like those are the things that stick and we need to create the space to have more of those especially in our modern world that kind of pulls us away and pulls us towards like you know, the cheap and superficial conversations and discussions that, that we, that are often easier to have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd love to uh, kind of like explore this idea when you say about being on the run, obviously well, most of our listeners are going to be the runners or exercises. And we have about 400 guys who are people who are using us as some kind of platform to help us them exercise themselves. Why do you think, I think I know, I think I know kind of like, way we might go with this but why do you think there is such a polarization with running especially like some people absolutely can't get enough of it love it and other people like if it if it had a target on it they would shoot it <laughs> yeah yeah you know that's a great question um i think a part of it is is um just how you're kind of introduced to the sport really is i'm sure it's uh, the same over there but in the u.s often people are introduced to the sport as like punishment for other sports right like oh if you didn't catch the ball go run some laps yeah. and, it, and it's like a it becomes a negative thing the other thing that i think gets in the way is often like people think running and they think oh this has to be hard so they go run hard every day like they go out and like breathe hard and like push every day and i always tell new runners i said look if every day was hard for me, I would probably quit running too. But the reality is, even if I'm training at a high level, like, you know, five days out of the week, like I can talk, you know, during the whole run and it's easy. Like maybe two days out of the week are hard, but like that's a minority of it. And I think we have to do a better job of like communicating and, and getting people to that. And then the other thing that I think I'm just throwing everything at the wall at you. I think sometimes people people don't make it to the stage where running is fun, which what I mean is when you're not fit, running isn't that fun. But once you get over that hump, it all of a sudden becomes like, oh, this can be this can be engaging like this can be social. Oh, this feels pretty good when you get kind of in the zone and you're just like clicking along and it feels energizing when I'm done, not like I'm dead for the rest of the day. <laughs> And I think we need to communicate that better to people of like, hey, you know, sometimes 
you know, the first bit kind of sucks. You know, when I think back to way back when I was coaching high school kids um, in the very beginning of my coaching career in, in Houston, Texas, is, you know, you'd get new runners who are starting, you know, joining the team or maybe starting for high school. And their first kind of runs were in the summer, right before school in Houston. Oh, okay. And it's like a, a billion degrees and 100% <laughs> humidity. And I remember I, I was like, I have to frame this for them. And I, I'd, I'd tell them the same thing. I'd be like, listen, no matter how slow you go, you're going to feel miserable for for like, you know, a couple weeks a month. Yeah. But I, I promise you, it's going to feel better. Like you're just going to wake up one day. You're going to go out on the run. You're going to be like, this is horrible. And then for whatever reason, like the clouds are going to part. You're going to be like, oh, this isn't that bad. And it inevitably happened, but I had to set the stage because I knew it was going to suck for a while. Hmm. And I think sometimes with new runners, like we do a bad job of saying, Hey, like this is going to be fun, but you're going to have to get to the point where like you're fit enough and like used to it enough where it can then be fun. So don't like give up during that, like this sucks period. Uh, it's such a, um, it's so exactly the area that I thought we were going to go down because uh, it's same over here. We get we were getting laps and we were getting all this crazy stuff as a part of a punishment. If you get your sh your shorts, you got to go and do it in your pants, or, or <laughs> you know, you were barely wearing no clothes back in the eighties, and you're having to run laps around this track or around this field, um, and that 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 deeply ingrains our experience with exercise, probably across all exercise from that from that point on. Um, so it's it's fascinating that that kind of carries on and becomes almost like a, a version of PTSD going into then oh, an adult. Oh, like I've told I've got I've, my friends booked me in for a 10K. I suppose I get I better get out there and start doing some work. But the memories that come flooding back and that vulnerability and that sort of like mirror that sort of slowly comes up in front of your face because you're stuck in your own head for so long out there doing this thing that you don't really enjoy and it's not fun. But the the bit that clicked for me was in uh, in peak performance. A lot, and we're going to discuss your new book yeah. um, in just a moment. But there's a bit in peak performance where you're talking about the idea of these automated tasks unlocking a part of the brain that's much more creative, problem solving, and so on. And how walking has a very beneficial part of that for that brain. And having walking meetings and uh, having stuck on a problem, go for a walk on it. Take a walk on it. I think and i'm sure you do as well that actually can happen from running eventually but like you said it takes time because the brain it, has to learn it <laughs> exactly that's what it's all about uh, sorry for cutting you off there but that no. like that that's it and you know what i tell people is like eventually it gets to the point where your easy run is like you know like your walk used to be and you know the reason that occurs is exactly as you uh, explained there is like movement allows us to occupy just a little bit of our brain because it's automated. We know what we're doing, whether we're walking, running, we don't have to think about every step, what happens, which frees up kind of your creative mind to like explore and wrestle with ideas and think about it. That's why often so many of our like aha moments come out on, on walks or runs in many cases. And I use this like when I'm deep in the throes of like writing a book and I inevitably get stuck and I'm like, this makes no sense. I don't know what to write next. Like this sucks. Like my solution is I'm going to go run. 
and I don't go run and think like, oh, I'm going to solve it all. I'm just like, I'm just going to go run for 45 minutes and, you know, just let my mind wander. It, inevitably, what happens is your mind kind of wanders around and you're not trying to think about it. But, you know, for whatever reason, something surfaces up and you're like, oh, this is what I should write. Or like, this is how <laughs> I solve this problem. And, and then you spend, you spend the rest of the run trying to remember it so you can get home <laughs> because like you don't have anything to record it or write it on. That's always the struggle. But like, that's how it works. So to me, that's, again, one of the, the beautiful things about running is that even if you're not trying to compete or run faster, like it can serve so many purposes and those purposes might change as you age. Like now my running serves as like a stress reliever or like getting insights or occasionally like doing something hard and remembering, reminding myself of like, oh yeah, this is what it feels like to, to hurt. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I need to remember this feeling and like, that's totally fine. So it, your, your view of running can change as you kind of age and develop. Amazing. So new book out, uh, it's been out for a while now. And uh, I, I think I, I pre-ordered it. <laughs> so I was, I was ready. I was on the list, got the audio book. Uh, and it's, it's incredible. Like as, as much as the other books have, you put so much time. You can feel the time going into it. You can feel the detail that you've spent submerging yourself in the subject. It sounds like you've been submerging yourself in this particular subject for a lot longer than you were writing the book for. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about how the sort of book came to fruition after the maybe potential decades of thinking about it? Yeah. So absolutely. So I mean, it's it's about redefining toughness, resilience, all that good stuff, and. It's something I've thought about since I was an athlete, you know, since I was running and, and having thoughts in the middle of races as a high school kid of like, oh, maybe I should step in this hole and, and, and this, you know, to get out of the run. Right. <laughs> and, and initially you're just like, you know, when you're a high school kid, you're like, oh, does this make me weak? And then you realize, no, everybody has these thoughts, like everybody from the top, the best of the best of the world. Like it's normal. It's a safety mechanism. So I've been thinking about writing that or thinking about this subject for a long time. And what really pushed me over the top is I kind of saw in, in my own coaching and experience working with people, even in, with organizations as like, you know, we're stuck on this kind of old school narrative of like, hey, just grit your teeth and bear it. And that's how you get through things. And as I said earlier, that's such a narrow kind of solution. There's so many other ways how we can deal with things. So I just wanted to explore that. And, you know, we write the books that we're wrestling with. So that makes it easier for me to kind of dive deep and explore all those ideas and spend the time doing it. And, you know, how the book got started is pretty simple with book projects. What I do is if I think it could be a book, I start a notebook. And I just write, I just start writing things that I'm noticing, thinking about, reading about, listening about, having conversations with that apply. And eventually what happens is I, I say, you know what, I got, I got a decent number of pages on this notebook. Let's see if we can turn something into, you know, turn it into something. And that's what happens is like, I was like, this needs to be written. So sometimes those those notebooks don't turn into anything, but often what happens is you just get enough information where you're like, no, I can make this something that's valuable to others. It's time to put this into the world. Wow. Uh, your process is, uh, obviously that um, interview with Jim Carrey, 
when he was there was like his, his retirement conversation and he was like you know if there is that script that just has to be heard <laughs> then i'll do it again it sounds like you have these kind of ideas and suddenly they're sort of like start congregating around a subject you're like um no i'm gonna go over here and then more things happen and then boom this is this one thing exactly it's all all allowing you to explore so i have way too many notebooks around and you know maybe 90 percent of it won't turn into anything but what happens is you you gotta explore and allow those ideas to kind of percolate and eventually what happens is they kind of percolate to the surface and you're like no this 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 i can make something out of like this is important and you're almost drawn to that and i think that that works for me at least a lot better than like forcing something and being like i'm going to write about this because like this is whatever and like that often backfires because what happens is you sit down and i've tried to do that before you sit down to you write and you get you know a little bit of the way in and you're like mm. this this just isn't jiving like i'm not this isn't the message that i want to send this isn't you know this isn't going to be cohesive enough or whatever the problem is so I think staying in that exploration mode until it kind of surfaces is is a much better bet. Have you changed your approach having gone and learned a lot of different stuff from a lot of different people in writing your other books? Have you resourced those those nuggets and put them into your own practice? Yeah, absolutely. I think I spend a lot more time on the outlining than I did at first because I realized that the structure matters more than even often more than the information the information is the easy part but when you're writing a book you're like taking the reader on a journey and like you've got to be able to like know where you're trying to direct them from and the other thing that i i think i do as well that i learned from some other really good authors is what happens about halfway through is you've written and read your own stuff writing or whatever so many times that you stop being able to like see it for what it is because mm. it's so familiar so you've got to find ways to like you know make it almost where you're reading it as as a new reader in a different light so i do a lot of different things so uh, for instance i used to just kind of write 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 until it's done and now i build in enough time where I can almost take a writing vacation. Right. So so what happens is I'll write, 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 maybe have even the entire thing like kind of sketched out and written out or maybe just like half of it or some point. But at some point I'm like, you know what? I'm not seeing this writing for what it is and I'll take like a month off. Right. And what that allows you to do is forget a little bit of what <laughs> you were writing. And that forgetting helps because you come back to it with kind of fresh eyes and you're like, oh, like, this is where I took the wrong, I should have taken this path and I took this path. So like, let's throw this out and like redo this. And that's, that's totally fine. And that's part of the process because I think the other thing that I used to do that I, I don't do as well, or don't do now is I used to, you know, write a chapter and then it's almost like you have that sunk cost. You're like, I spent so much time on this. I don't want to throw it away. But now I feel comfortable and being like, even with, with do hard things, like, I threw out an entire chapter like I got rid of it because I was like, this doesn't do what I thought it was going to do. You know, uh, years ago, I would have been like, but I spent so much time writing, you know, <laughs> these these 6000 words like don't throw it out. But I realized like, no, it's about 
it's it's about like getting to the point in the project you're trying to do and sometimes that means eliminating stuff it's, with the way you talk about writing a book it almost sounds like it's the same thought process in creating like a training schedule for somebody in that the the con the context of the training is much more important than the context or the content sorry and not an individual workout isn't the important thing is how that journey happens for the athlete exactly i'm glad you made that analogy because you know early on in coaching i used to obsess over the individual (laughs) workout and like you know it's almost like once you wrote it down on the schedule it was like written in 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 ink and stone you know you're like it's not changing i wrote this workout and what you realize is like you know as you develop as a coach is like there's nothing magical about that workout and sometimes that needs to change and sometimes it's about the flow overall than like the individual workout here or there and, and how it all pieces together so in many ways it's very similar in writing in the sense that like you've got to be able to like let go of the individual workout or the chapter or the paragraph or what have you and realize that change is going to happen and you can't predict the future when you're, you know, outlining or when you're writing that training schedule. So accept it, you know, and, you know, adapt it and move on and grow. Incredible. So in the, in the book, you have these, uh, these two particular characters who are, one is very unfamous in, in like the general world and one is very famous. So Coach Knight has well being put on this pedestal is like the most like the uh, American dream style, Hollywood style coach. Uh, can you give a little bit of a backstory as to Coach Knight and where his fame came from? Yeah, so he's a, a college basketball coach who was one of the winningest college basketball coaches in history. Is famous for having an undefeated season in basketball where he won every game all the way through the championship and, you know, coached in the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s and was kind of seen as the epitome of like, this is how you create tough teams is like, do what he does, which he was like, very demanding, very authoritarian control, very like my way or the highway, almost like the military drill sergeant um, kind of approach. Um, the downside is he became infamous for <laughs> later, like losing his temper, throwing chairs at players, like, you know, just losing it. But people kind of said, oh, forget about this stuff. Like it's the strictness that creates the the toughness. Wow. I don't know if we have uh, many sort of those examples in the in the UK, but I think we've all had that kind of exposure to someone something like that or uh, so from the fitness industry we've got this sort of like go hard or go home mentality where yeah. the, the instructor in the fitness class is if you're not burpeeing hard enough like they'll come over and shout profanities at you and, and tell you to do more and so on it sounds like it's a similar kind of similar kind of personality trait exactly that's what it is it's the it's the coach or whoever yelling and screaming at you in your face to kind of try and motivate you and tell and sometimes telling you you're worthless to try and motivate you right it's like that kind of mentality and unfortunately in the u.s we kind of specialize in that because people <laughs> caught people copy it and think like oh this is the way to you know power and control and if you instill fear they'll they'll listen it's kind of that what we talked about earlier it's the coach who mm-hmm. like routinely uses running as punishment because they think that oh they'll be afraid of running so they'll do this play or whatever exercise correct instead of realizing like how to actually motivate and teach yeah and so there's this other character uh, other coach from history brian brian carroll uh yep. coach carroll um 
Can you give a little bit of a, a sort of a, a synopsis in the same way about him? Yeah, yeah. So football coach, uh, college and professional, who, you know, initially kind of took on a little bit of that kind of old school approach because like football is old school, but quickly in his career realized like, hey, like this doesn't work. I've got to give more autonomy and freedom to my players. And like, I've got to create an atmosphere where I support them and to get the, the best out of them and, you know, have sometimes like have fun at practice and, you know, not, instead of dictate and demand, like give my players some decision making. And what happened is he became really successful, won a college championship and the NFL championship Super Bowl as well. And often what happens, though, even with that success, we dismiss it hmm. because we kind of say, oh, well, you know, like maybe he was a player's coach and like that wouldn't work. And like that was a unique situation. But what the reality shows and what I tried to illustrate in the book is that from research, from practice, is that we have a whole slew of, of coaches and athletes and leaders and managers that show us and research that shows us that like when you treat people as decent human beings, they perform better. And when you motivate them by giving them some autonomy and a sense of progress and belonging, they perform better. The old school authoritarian style often backfires because like, it doesn't satisfy our, our basic human psychological needs. And so there's this uh, almost like a dark and light situation do you think there's a place for both of them so one personality would actually perform really like almost like a responder and non-responder where someone would respond really well to the night approach and someone wouldn't approach respond very well to the carol approach or do you think it is much more like actually there is a very clear person that wouldn't respond at all <laughs> yeah that's a that's a tricky question what i would say is i think that some people might respond to it but i think that you can you can kind of have strict or authoritarian and the parenting research tells us you can have more of a strict and authoritarian style if you accompany it with a high level of support and care. Hmm. And like if your parent, for instance, it's not like don't have high expectations or what have you, but if your child or athlete knows that like you actually care for them and want the best for them and all that stuff, then you can get away with a little bit more of that maybe strictness or control. Um, so I think there's like new there. It's like anything. There's room for nuance here. But what happens is people take it to the extremes. Mm. And what all of the data shows is that it's much better to be supportive, responsive, and all of that good stuff in the, the Coach Carroll model than in the other, the night model. And what actually happens is I talked to a bunch of basketball people around, well, Bobby Knight won a lot of games. Like how was he successful? And he's, and most of them will tell you, it's like he was brilliant at the X's and O's and the actual coaching step part. The motivation stuff, his style probably got in the way and prevented him from having success, even more success, <laughs> but he got away with it because he lived and coached in an era, especially in the eighties, in 90s in the US where players, especially in college, didn't have much choice, right? They couldn't like move schools or find a better option or even know there were better options out there because like the internet didn't exist. And you <laughs> you kind of showed up to college and you're like, well, this is the coach I got. Like, I guess I'm, you know, I guess I'm stuck with it. Like I better survive. And now we live in a society where there's more options. 
So people aren't going to stick around and survive. They're going to find the place where they can flourish. I was talking to an 800 meter runner on our treadmill doing a uh, biomechanical analysis. And she actually was in uh, on a scholarship in the US. Come of which university she was at. But she said that the coach, one of the her hit, sorry, his signature workouts was that they would um, put tape over the treadmill speed, put the treadmill speed up to whatever the coach saw fit, and then walk off and not tell the athlete how long they were going to be there for. <laughs> and so a route like 15 treadmills all running at the same time, and everyone was just got, had to hang there and just hang on for as long as they possibly could until either the coach came back or they <laughs> fell off. That's wild. <laughs> so, so you know, we actually did uh, a, a kind of mini study on this when I was at at the University of Houston, where you know we ran a, a traditional kind of looking at VO two max. We ran a traditional test where you know we didn't give the athlete any control, where they just had to survive until they fell off the treadmill, right? And then we ran another test where we said, you know what, you're in charge, like. You, bring, you know how to get exhausted, like you're a runner, like increase the speed until you feel like you're completely exhausted, increase it however you want. And what happened with the high level athletes is when we gave them that choice and that freedom, they scored higher on their V2 max, like it was significantly higher. Sure. And I think the reason for it is pretty simple is when we give people a choice, instead of just tell them to survive, they perform better. Now, there are some people where it didn't make a difference. And when you look at them, it was often the newer ones who had no idea how to bring themselves to exhaustion. So kind of surviving kind of simplified it for them, where they were just like, okay, I just hang on for as long as I, I can. And when you gave them a choice, it was like overwhelming because they're like, I don't know what pace I'm supposed to run. I don't know how to do this. So for some people, maybe like that workout works well, but for others, it's like you give them a choice and they'll perform better because like we're human beings and we perform better when we have options and we can kind of have that autonomy to work it out ourselves. So if we could uh, at the moment sort of remove ourselves from both Steve and Fletch and uh, bring ourselves into a new character for a second and uh, I'll be doing a role play is like athlete walking into the gymnasium under coach carol's reign versus coach knight's reign and how that coach may deal with the situation differently uh, feel free to uh, uh let yourself go in, in any way <laughs> just don't throw your microphone because uh... <laughs> so uh walking to the gym i haven't got the right stuff on can't be a blase walking in late 15 minutes i was supposed to be here and uh, haven't done any of the prep that i was supposed to do Coach Knight. What the hell are you doing? Like, what, what's your problem? Can't you see we're, we're all supposed to be here? Are you dumb? Do you know, you knew what time, what time were you supposed to be here? You know what time you're supposed to be here, right? Okay, well, you didn't show up. You let down your team. You let down me. You let down everyone. You can't do this again. It's time to go run laps, run laps. You know what? Don't even run laps. I don't want to see you. Like, get out of the gym. Like, you don't deserve to be at practice today. Go run laps on yourself, and you can show up tomorrow if you show up not even on time early because you're disrespecting everybody. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> We've all heard that at some point, I think, in our past. Like the hairs on my arm from uh, my PE teacher. Okay, so then same situation. Walk in, 15 minutes late. 
Steve, do I have anything on none of the prep? Coach Carroll. I, hey, Anthony. Hey, like you're a little bit late, but we got to talk about something. I'm going to get these guys going, but then I'm going to talk to you once we're ready. So let me get these guys going. You get the team going, all that good stuff. Then you come over. Anthony, what's going on, man? I know you were late. Like, what's what what happened? Is everything all right? Uh, yeah, just had a little bit of uh, uh, traffic delays. And my mom, she had a phone call. She couldn't get me in the car. But uh, I'm sorry, coach. Hey, look, I know things happen. But here's why it's really important that you're on time and you're prepared. Because, like, we're a team and we're a unit. And, like, where we all go, like, we go as a team. The other thing is, just think about it. If you're not warmed up and I just threw you into this workout, like that has a potential for an injury. And if you get injured, like, are you helping yourself out? No. Are you helping the team out? No, you're kind of, you know, you're putting us in a tough spot. So this is why preparation matters. I know that sometimes things are getting going to get in the way. And if they do, when something comes up, what I want you to do is instead of showing up late, like text me, let me know that something's going on. You know, even if that's like, Hey, I had a big exam and I'm exhausted. I'm not going to be mad. I just want to know. And then we can figure out that problem. What I don't take is if you just kind of show up without any, you know, you just show up because you're not prioritizing things. Like if you're part of this team, we need to prioritize things. But if there's a legitimate reason, then we need to, you know, work that out and figure out how we can figure that out together so that you're in the best place you can be and help the team in the way that I know you can. Woo! <laughs> smashed it, smashed it. That's really cool. I think that that gives people a really clear understanding of the, like the compassion, the care that the coach Carol and those coaches of that style have because they really do care about their athletes and it is much more about the the greater good of bringing everyone together and knowing that individuals are complex exactly that's what it is and you know what i would summarize it is like this isn't complicated like everybody wants to be treated like a decent human being yeah <laughs> you know like and if in that example if if uh, you know people often don't you know if you show up late there's often a reason behind it, you know, or if you're not motivated for whatever reason, there's often a reason behind it. Often it, it it's like, oh, I'm struggling, in, you know, in life or I'm going through this difficult things. Like most people don't just don't do the work because like they want to, you know, sabotage your coaching, your team or what have you. There are very few people who are that cynical or whatever <laughs> have you. So I think like that's where it is, is like when we're looking at coaching as like treat people, it's not it's not being soft to understand like the nuance and complexity or what people are going through. And then most importantly, as a coach is your role is to help them through that. So if someone routinely shows up late, for example, to use that, it's like your job is to coach them up on how to get them to show up on time hmm. or to like, you know, prioritize stuff. And a lot of times we're working with, you know, in these situations, 18 to 22 year old kids who often who have like, you know, for better or worse, maybe aren't prepared or don't have to navigate things, or maybe you're at university and away from mom and dad for the first time ever. And, you know, 
for better or worse, like mom and dad used to pack their stuff or lunch or what have you. And they're just like, oh, I've never done this before. Yeah. Like we got to teach people. And if we teach people, then that skill lasts a lifetime. And that's what coaching is all about. I'm, I'm very conscious of your time, but I would love to very, uh, very briefly and in a summary way, go over these four pillars that you mentioned in the book, because they do kind of underpin then the philosophy of like what it takes to be mentally tough. Uh, and sort of the, I would say new version, because it's always been there, but just it, the other side got more, because extremism is so fashionable. Extremism is so in, like, tangible. People can people know what it is. We mentioned earlier on, like, oh, what are you? <laughs> people want a very small snapshot of like of the complexity. So would you mind going through these four pillars and, and sort of help us understand the, the complexities of this? Absolutely. So we'll, we'll do the kind of rapid fire of this. So... <laughs> Uh, number one, the first pillar is ditch the facade, embrace reality. We've been talking about this whole time, which is like toughness isn't like walking around with, you know, machismo and bringing, you know, having bravado and like putting on the front. Toughness is about realizing and accepting who you are and what you're capable of, because often the external is insecurity. What we really want to develop is internal strength, which is, you know, it's all about being like secure in like who you are and what you're doing and knowing like what you're capable of. It's being real. And too often in life, we're not real. Mm. Um, the second pillar is, is listen to your body, which comes back to that idea we talked about earlier, which is often when it thinks to being tough, we think, Oh, we have to like ignore our emotions, like forget the negative voice in our head, forget the doubts, push away the doubts that are telling you you're not good enough and that you need to quit. And what I, instead I'm telling people is like, those are normal. They come from being a human. Like we're going to face those. So instead of trying to resist and push them away, like let's listen to them so that we can decide, okay, how do I navigate this? Or sometimes like, I'm going to listen to it and decide like, Hey, this is like my crazy aunt or uncle on Facebook. I'm going to just scroll on by like, <laughs> you know, this one doesn't deserve any listening. And then the third pillar is respond instead of react, which essentially gets at this. It's like during stressful times or experiences where we, we experience some sort of discomfort, our natural inclination is to almost go into that, like, fight or flight mode of like, okay, how do I solve this problem really quickly? And what happens is we spend way too much time reacting, which often backfires. So instead, what I'm trying to tell people is like, toughness is about creating the space so you can kind of keep your mind steady and on straight so that you can make the best decision possible. So that we don't let our kind of mind spiral out of control towards like what I'd call a freak out and instead can kind of navigate that situation. So learning how to respond to it instead of react. And then the fourth pillar um, I call transcend discomfort, which is in much of the book, we talk about kind of the individual things of how to, how to navigate discomfort, you know, and deal with those thoughts and emotions. But a lot of it is, is transcending that and, and realizing that the environment around you, like we've talked about, like that allows you to be tough. If you have an environment that supports your psychological needs, that allows you to be tough. If you can find meaning in the challenge, the discomfort, the struggle, the failures, 
like that allows you to grow as a human being. So it's about more than just being tough to win the game or accomplish the, you know, set a PR in the race or what have you. It's about like transcending that and, and finding kind of meaning in the challenge. And if you can do that, you're going to be tougher, but you're also going to live a happier and more fulfilled life. Oh, incredible. It's almost like a recipe for, <laughs> well, I think it's what you're, you're really good at. And pardon me for sort of, uh, throwing a compliment out there for maybe too much, but you're so good at taking this vast subject. It's the entirety of our human nature, both physiologically and psychologically, and condensing it into very bite-sized digestible chunks. But that it, probably comes from your coaching experience, right? It, it does. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's almost like Twitter, right? <laughs> like, right. like breaking things down to like, whatever it is, a couple hundred characters. Yeah. But I, I, I think it is coaching because like what you understand, what you have to realize is that um, in order for information to have an impact, it has to be actionable. And no different than yourself. Like when you're sitting there seeing an athlete struggle, maybe in a workout or a race, like, what goes through your head when you're coaching is, okay, what can I say to like convey the information that gets them out of this? You know, it's not, how do I go on a 10 minute speech about like, you know, fatigue or whatever have you, it's what can I condense this to so that it connects with them? Mm. And I think that's what the, what, what writing is as well is like, how do I condense this into a, usable kind of outline or you know bite-sized chunk that where people walk around will walk away and they say ah i get this concept and here's how i can apply it to my life because that's what it's all about is like you know we can all write you know great compound com uh, complex stuff but like if someone doesn't walk away from the book and say hey i can use x y and z then i failed mm -hmm. so i need to give them the things they can walk away with Love it. And the sort of the, the party piece I'd love to get your thoughts on. Uh, again, I'm very conscious of your time and uh, we've given you've given us so much information and, and, and time. The one thing I'd love to sort of get from you because we interviewed Gary Martin, who's a college runner who just broke the four minute mile, but not just broke it, he ran the whole thing by himself pretty much on the track. So uh, speaking to him, he was like, exceptionally level-headed very uh, uh confident on his his routine and his experience and so on but pretty nonchalant about him being previously not really a runner and then coming to track and finding his affinity to it loving the community aspect and that's what's driving him forwards what would be your advice to him <laughs> in this now he's now just gone to university uh university of virginia what would be your advice to him to keep going or or not uh, what would be your voice oh man that's tough so you know I, i've never spoken to him but I, or i know the story a little bit of of his high school success all i would say is like keep that mindset that you just talked about which is like don't lose sight of what fulfilled your or filled your bucket from running so that community that connection that like maybe challenge whatever it is that got you excited about in, in high school don't let the results steal that away because often what happens is we get 
we move up a level, we go to university and we're looking at results and now it quote unquote matters more, what have you. Like, don't get lost in that because when we get too results orientated or too like that kind of success blindness, that pulls us towards our motivation towards external motivators. And what we know from decades of research is the internal motivators are what matters, the intrinsic motivation. So remember those things that stoke that intrinsic fire and hold on to them and like keep stoking them and don't lose sight of them because that's what's going to matter more in your career versus like the accolades or records or whatever it is that that we often get caught up in. Amazing. And then to flip reverse that to someone who probably uh, identified as someone who hated running, but just sort of gets that itch. They want to try it or their friends are doing it. They seem to be loving it. They want to try it, but they, they're nervous around how they look. They're nervous around the, that internal voice that keeps on coming in their head saying they're rubbish at it. They're running slow. What would be your advice for them, apart from reading every of your, all of your books? <laughs> there you go. Um, first thing is find a community. That's number one, can be in-person, online, some mix of it, find a community that is really important, people you like being around. And the second part is, here's, I know this is hard to conceptualize and sometimes, but like no one cares how you look or how you perform. And I have to tell high-level athletes this, they're, they're worried about like, oh, if I fail in this race or I get beat, like I'm gonna be so embarrassed and I have to break them down and be like, look, who are the people you care about? And it's like, oh, my family, my friends, my close friends, you know, my coaches, what have you. It's like, you think any of them are going to like yell and scream at you if like you lose this race or get last? And they're like, no. I'm like, your mom, dad still going to love you. Your brothers, sisters, your friends, they still going to talk to you. Yes, of course. I said, well, those are the people who matter. Like those people aren't going to think, oh, you look slow because you got last or didn't improve or what have you. Those people are going to be by your side and they're not going to care at all. They're going to say, you know what? Great job being out there. I'm proud of you. And that's what matters. So if you're a beginner, realize that, you know, if someone's trying to hate on you or calling you not a real runner, they don't matter. That's just coming from insecurity. The people who care about you, who love love you, who support you, like they're going to be thrilled and stoked that you got out there, whether you're running a 15-minute mile or a five-minute mile. And I think that is like, that's what it's all about. So like, remind yourself of that, like to get over that hump because, you know, worry about the people who actually matter in your life, not about, you know, the, the external that often gets in our way. Incredible. That's going to be a soundbite on its own. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So uh, thank you so much, Steve. Do Hard Things, your new book. It's uh, a going to be a cornerstone for uh, anyone coaching. I think personally should read it, but also recommend it because it's not only for self-development as an educator or as a deliverer, but also to critically analyze the stuff that's around you and be able to sort of look at the world in a different way. So I highly recommend everyone has this book on their shelf and reads it. I personally think it's a great thing to listen to as you're doing other stuff as well, because as you're doing the things that you are finding tough, you can instantly reframe it and be able to analyze it in the moment. So um, thank you so much for writing it and uh, all the hard work you've been putting into 
getting your message out there. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your support of my work. No worries. You have to join us for a virtual run at some point. <laughs> you, you got it. <laughs> All right, Steve, thank you so much. And uh, have an amazing time. All right. Thank you. guys thank you so much for tuning in for that conversation with steve magnus in his new book do hard things we highly recommend you get it as i said at the end is a cornerstone for everybody's shelves both as a recipient but also as a deliverer so please do yourself a favor get it for someone else get it for yourself and uh we do quote a lot of the experiences a lot of the teachings in our audio runs you fancy joining in for some of those do download our app or check out our website and we'll coach you through a live run in the virtual world. Uh, We'll see you soon. Peace out.